It's Black History Month in the UK. This is a fantastic opportunity to recognise the outstanding contributions people of African and Caribbean descent have made. We are now addressing issues of race and racism across all sectors throughout society and the world of sport is no exception. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. I'm Catherine Granger and welcome to the first episode of Season 2. Now I have no concerns about the traditional tricky second album feeling as today we are starting on a high. We'll be hearing from two of the most prominent diversity campaigners in British sport. We'll hear from Chris Grant. I think there's probably one third of our Olympic and Paralympic sports which have never had an athlete representing us who wasn't white ever on the Olympic and Paralympic stage. Chris has worked extensively across the sporting system. He was Deputy Chair of International Inspiration, London 2012's groundbreaking International Development Programme. And he's also served as a member of the Commission on the Future of Women's Sport, Comic Relief's UK Grants Committee and the Board of the Youth Sport Trust. From February 2014 to September 2018, Chris was the Chief Exec of Sported, the London 2012 legacy charity, serving a UK-wide membership of over 3,000 grassroots groups. And currently, Chris is an independent board member of Sport England. And as if that isn't enough today, I have the equally impressive Michelle Moore joining me. Black history is really important, and especially at this time. Some of the trauma of reliving racism through what they're seeing on their screens is critically significant that we acknowledge how difficult that space is, but we also celebrate in their talent and recognise and celebrate who they are. Michelle is a former athlete, now an award-winning leadership coach, consultant and international speaker. She is a trustee of the Ronnie Mead Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank. And Michelle also advises the Women's Sport Trust, Sports Aid and Sport England, amongst many others. Michelle is passionate about addressing issues and supporting change. And unsurprisingly, she has been voted one of the UK's 50 most influential women in sport. And in line with government advice, we are recording this remotely with all of us working from home. Chris, if I can start with you, you've done amazing things in the sports sector for a long time, but people probably are more recently aware when you spoke out very publicly through a series of articles in the newspapers about the need for sport to improve the attitude towards race. Can I just ask why you felt now was the time to tackle this issue? I felt that this was the time to speak out really clearly and really openly. And and part of that um, was a reflection, I think, of some of the changes that have happened uh, since a very specific event, which was the 25th of May uh, of this year, which was the filming of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And for me, you know, I've, I've been in love with sport all my life. I've been involved in sport for quite a long time. Well, most of my life in different ways. And I've also been um, aware as, you know, growing up in this country in the 60s and 70s as a a young black kid um, of the dynamics around race. And and those things hadn't changed at all between the 25th and the 26th of May. What had changed was, was the context and perhaps a sense for me that people might be more willing to stop and think and listen uh, to the conversation around some of these issues than they had been on the 24th of May. And how did you feel the reaction was? 
I felt that the reaction was, well, the first thing to say is there was a reaction. And whenever a, 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 you know, something happens, it's like a, a stone or a pebble dropping into the water. What I'm always interested in is how far do the ripples go? And people were asking the question fairly shortly after the 25th of May about whether this was a, a moment or a movement. And my sense of it, I think, along with lots of other people was, well, if, if we allow it to, it will just peter out and, and we'll look back on it as a moment. But one of the reasons why I chose to go public at that point and to um, to be very clear about what some of the things that I felt the sport could do was was precisely because I felt that what we needed to do was build on what had happened with some initiatives and some actions which would give this thing legs because we're not going to resolve these problems and challenges overnight. Many of them have built up, and I'm sure we'll talk about this over decades, if not centuries. So it's going to be a long haul to fix them, and, and that's why I felt it was a good moment to, to speak out. Michelle, just bring you in. Were you, obviously, I mean, I think we all watched the, the George Floyd videos and realised that, that, you know, and also the reaction to it, that, that things were going to change. Did you, first of all, probably that incident itself, did you think at some point this is now going to be a seismic shift? And then also looking at sports specifically, do you feel like Chris was saying this is now a time to to address it in a different way than we've ever done before? I think the killing of George Floyd affected so many people globally, worldwide. You know, we saw, we've seen the aftermath has seen serious amounts of protests, you know, the toppling of statues of enslavers. We have seen athletes, especially GB athletes, using their voices in, in, in ways that they haven't used their voices before. But we've also seen black people being very affected by the trauma of that experience of reliving a killing, witnessing it into our homes. And then we relive in the trauma of racism throughout our lives. And so it has had a, a massive impact. And, you know, in a way, it's not just about George Floyd, is it? It's about the fact that this has historically been the situation for black and brown people globally for, for a very long time. And at the same time that George Floyd was being killed, there were four other racist killings going on in, in America at that same time. But they just weren't being filmed. And so it's really interesting for me as a, as a black woman of English and Guyanese heritage and at the same time, I was working and supporting athletes um, as they were finding their voices and they were having to find ways to support themselves, but also to develop their consciousness around these issues. And as a lover of sport, as a as a former athlete, I wasn't an international. I was nowhere near those levels. I was just a decent county athlete and I play netball now. So I've always been involved in sport since the age of eight. For me, my love of sport is... It, it, um, powers my way to, to a space where how can I use my voice in my way to be able to be a part of the, the solution around this. And this has been a, a lifelong journey as a black woman who has experienced racism and discrimination throughout my entire career. And my life chances have been affected by that in all kinds of ways. Therefore, for me, what's going on globally is is a moment it's it's what dave zyron calls this um marriage between movement and movement and that's what's happened you know right back and uh with in jesse owens day in 1936 but also with tommy smith and john carlos back in 
1968 as they stood on the rostrum uh, with their, their fists aloft in the salute for the, against the racial oppression of many black and brown people globally. And it was a part of a big strategy for the Olympic Project for Human Rights. This wasn't just something that they just did. And the consequence of the sanctions for them were, you know, untold death threats and they never ran again. You know, let's be clear. And so when we look at the timing of George Floyd and we look at what sport is doing and some of the reaction to it, there is this this sense that there is a, almost this marriage between movement and moment. And I think that that is something that we have to build on for sure. And does it does it feel for both of you that that it's it's sort of come at the same time as athletes generally feeling they have a, a stronger voice and you know more to say in a bigger platform to speak on and you know a bit like Michelle you're talking about um, athletes in the past who have maybe made protests on podium and yet and been sanctioned for it compared to now when there's the big discussions whether or not you know if athletes take the knee or do the similar at the Olympic Games now it's sort of condoned and and encouraged to some extent because it is a sort of safe way to to make a protest. Does that feel like it's, you know, the time is is right where athletes have a louder voice than before? I think it's very different globally. I think in the US, there's a political mobilisation around how athletes are unable to use their voice collectively. In the UK, that doesn't exist. We don't have the same amounts of unions or collective action or the political mobilisation of athletes coming together to do that. So it's been very much of an individual um, action and choice within the UK. And, you know, that comes at a consequence. We, you know, back in 2017, when Eniola Aluko took, you know, the FA all the way to the up to DCMS and, and really held them to account for the racism that she was experiencing and, and was rightfully found that was to be the case, the serious repercussions for that individual athlete in doing that were huge from the media backlash to the to the death threat. So we have to be really clear that there is a real there was a real impact of, of making a choice to do something actively. But to your question in terms of it, is this the time and, and, and why is it important? It, you know, we at sport when what's the beauty of sport is it punctures privilege. You know, what athletes do is they go into the homes of people, the mainstream, and it touches those people that are completely unaffected by discrimination and oppression. And it says to them that this is serious. That, and, and that cultural capital that sport has is hugely significant because it accelerates progress, it accelerates change. And let's be clear, you know, in no it, historically, an athlete just in the summer, Marcus Rashford made it so that young people from poorer backgrounds were able to eat, you know. So we are not only fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, we're fighting the pandemic that is everyday racism, that, that, that is in the headlines because of the Black Lives Matter movement and because of what happened to George Floyd. But we are also seeing athletes stepping into their power, stepping into those leadership positions in ways that they haven't done before. And would you say that the athletes you've worked with supported to, to sort of, as you say, step in and find their voice and use that platform. There, there might always be a risk of what will happen if and when I speak out. Have you been, would you still advise athletes that is a, you know, is a really great place to be? Or would you be cautious about, you know, the consequences of, of stepping forward and speaking out? It's all about understanding 
the ways in which we can choose to use our voice. It might not be that you're speaking out. It might be that you are the wonderful Alice Deering, who's hopefully Tokyo Hope, but she sets up and co-founds the Black Swimming Association. It might be that you use your voice in all kinds of different ways. And so my advice and support to athletes is to find your role within this kind of sports for social change ecosystem that I talk about. You might be a, a visionary, you might be an experimenter, you might be an innovator, you might be a disruptor. Find what aligns to your allegiance, your own personal characteristics and the ways in which you can make your contribution. And it's not going to be the same for everybody. And everyone is at their different levels of consciousness around these issues. I've seen a, a really profound change, I think, part of which I, I, I don't think is specific to sport. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be father of two 20-something young women. And I think that, and, and in the UK, I mean, it's already, it's always culturally, uh, you know, it's always contextualised by the specific culture of a country. I think our success in performance sport has epitomised through our Olympic and Paralympic success over the last um, kind of 12, 16 years um, has been a kind of negotiation and, and performance in sport is always a negotiation. I mean, great athletes have to have to make massive sacrifices. They have to give a lot up through their important developmental years in order to be as good as they are and, and, and to win. And the sports have to make it, you know, the sports do a kind of deal with them, which is about, well, if, you're, if, you, if you work with us, we can't guarantee anything. But a lot of the best coaches I've ever worked with, and I've worked with lots of sports coaches, they see their primary responsibility as being to the athletes and to the fulfillment of those athletes' dreams. Now, I think that my generation were, were, were more willing to shut up about things uh, and just, you know, just get on with stuff and do what we were told. I think generationally, this is a massive generalization, but I think it's true. And it is that, you know, the, the, the young people who are coming through and who are in the performance programs, their whole generation will not be quiet about certain things. They will not be quiet about injustice, whether that's injustice that they see across the Atlantic Ocean or, you know, that they hear about in, in their own country or that they witness in, in the program that they're part of. So, and I think, you know, obviously, I think that's a really positive thing. And I think it presents both a challenge and an opportunity to, to the system, if you like. The, the, the challenge is that the system has to take a good long look at itself and what it's asking of those athletes and how it's asking them to, to, to behave and engage. The opportunity is that the system becomes equipped to deal with a broader range of people. And one of, the, one of my passions around sport at all levels is that it should be, you know, we have, when I was at Sported, uh, you mentioned the 3,000 groups. Between them, we worked out that they were using somewhere in the region of 96 to 100 different activities and sports. So they weren't all formally recognised sports. There were activities too, like, you know, um, kite surfing for disabled young people in Cornwall, or some of them just using kind of active walking and so on. Now, my, my whole view is that every single sport and activity at every level in as much as it's possible for people to participate from a physiological point of view, they should be able to, and they should have that opportunity. And I think the opportunity for all of sport is to become truly a mass movement in, you know, by, and they can do that in part 
through responding to the challenge and the gauntlets that, that are being thrown down by athletes and other younger people. So I really welcome it. And I, and I think, but the other part side of it, if I may, is that I think that, you know, having had some sense as, as Michelle has from a different perspective, and as you've lived, Catherine, of the demands of performance sport, I feel that, it, as you say, Michelle, it should always be up to the athlete and we shouldn't expect our athletes to have to be the flag bearers or the ambassadors. You know, I think for, you know, for a Raheem Sterling or an Alice Deering, who Michelle's mentioned, or all, or all of the other, you know, 20 something people who've chosen to speak out, you know, their, their primary responsibility at this stage of their life is, is to be as good as they can in that, you know, on the field of play, in the pool, on the track. And, you know, they have, I mean, I, I'm astonished, frankly, by what Lewis Hamilton has done and recently. And I don't think it's a weird thing with Lewis Hamilton. I don't think he gets the recognition in this country that he should. Um, I mean, I'm not a Formula One fan, so I don't, I can't remember whether it's six or seven world championships he has. I know he's approaching Schumacher's record for the number of Grand Prix won. Um, but to be at the top of his game and taking on the this 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 activism role at the same time is amazing. But I don't think most athletes, particularly at a slightly earlier stage of their career, should be expected to do that. And if they have to make a choice, I will understand if normally the choice is to be as good as they can in their chosen field. Because frankly, also, um, you know, they'll probably have quite a lot of time after they retire to go on and do other stuff too. Interest to hear from both of you on considering you know, sport has always been at every level, you know, full of young people, people who are enthusiastic and kind of ready for the world and got, got that amazing opportunity and idealism, hopefully still. How has sport gotten to a place that, as you said, Chris, when you sort of went public about it all, that, that racism has been, you know, such a big issue that whether it's consciously or unconsciously, it's got to a place that now needs to be from the addressed. I mean, is that just because sport reflects general society or is there a reason why in sport that racism arguably does exist across different parts of it? Well, my answer to that would be that the a lot of the strengths of sport, a lot of the reasons why people love sport are also its weaknesses in this in this context, because, you know, sport promotes a sense of togetherness and of community. A lot of clubs and a lot of sports talk about, you know, their family the you know the whatever family I'm looking at you Catherine so I'll say the rowing family and but of course families are you know the reason they they feel warm and comfortable is because you're with people who you can relate with very quickly and easily and who are a bit like you and and I think the history not enough thinking has been done and it's not it doesn't have to be about pointing fingers and about blame and self-recrimination but but what what has to happen is a, is a kind of sober, cold view at the history of some of our sports and and just how they've developed, where their infrastructure is. You know, as sitting on the board of Sport England, one of the things I'm really interested in is if you do a heat map of England against socioeconomic factors, and ask yourself where are the actual clubs of most sports? You know, they don't map very well onto those areas where there tends to be more diversity and certainly where there tend to be people who don't have so many means. Now, that's a historical fact. We, you know, we could spend ages beating ourselves up about it or we could just notice it, log it, analyze it and compensate for it. 
And, you know, there are so many examples of, you know, one of the things I love, and I think probably my fellow board members on Sport England are sick of hearing me talk about, is what I call, in my jargon, positive deviance. You know, those, those, those exceptions to the norms. So my, you know, my, one of my favourite examples is Ebony Horse Club in Brixton, you know, which is a riding club in Brixton. And they do various things. The main thing they do is just help young people in South East London get the opportunity to work with and around horses and ponies, which some of them hate and go once and never come back to because that would always be the case. But as in any other environment, rural or urban, some kids would just fall in love with them. And 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 then they get the chance, some of them, to, to race ponies. And famously, one of their alumni, Khadija Mella, won an, an amateur race um, at, at, a, at Goodwood, I think uh, it was, the Magnolia Cup. Now, the, that's a really good example of, of what you can, and there are many others, there are many others. I know that, that in your sport, in, in rowing, there are brilliant examples of clubs that have been set up in non-traditional environments, which with the right kind of input and support have attracted young people to come and, and enjoy, and in some cases, sell at those sports. I think as a, as a, as a nation now, or as the four home nations, we need to think really carefully about the history of our sport, why they've evolved in the way they have, uh, the structural. So when we talk about structural racism, that's an example of what we mean. It's not just about the behaviours of an institution right now. It's about the ways in which its heritage or its baggage plays out now and, and plays a part in excluding segments of the population. Once you see that with a cool eye, you can do something about it. And the great thing about sport is that once people kind of get the bug for something, then they can become part of that family. And when they become part of that family, they change the family. I think that was such a great answer by Chris. I'm just seduced by it. Um, <laughs> the idea of, um, you know, what we get from sport in that sense of identity, which is what Chris was talking so powerfully about, is so fundamentally wrapped up in who we are as individuals, isn't it? So we're that's why we have such a connection to a team and um, and that shared identity when you're a part of a, a, a netball winning team like I am. But the the idea that that sport doesn't represent who I am and what I'm about is is so is 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 so incongruent with my own values and beliefs that that's why I'm so passionate about how is it that we can create greater equity and so from I remember a conversation I had actually with Cyril Regis and, um, you know, he was a great footballer and campaigner and, and passed away, um, sadly, a few years ago. And, and one of the things that um, we talked about is how how you can create real change as a as a collective. How can you get everybody together on the same page? And I was excitedly saying it's possible and Cyril, you know, had gone through the 70s of all of this campaigning and everything. And he was looking at me a little bit like side-eye, like Michelle, like, really? Like, you know, how are we going to do this? We have been trying to do this. Uh, but I just remembered the kind of, the hope that we still had in that that discussion. It was a really powerful conversation. It was at the, the football blacklist, actually, um, put on by Leon Mann and Rodney Hines from The Voice. And I just reflected on how far we've come and how far we haven't come. You know, it's like, Actually, we have banana skins on our football pitches. We have people being openly racist in ways that we thought that that wouldn't be the case. And so it does make me reflect and make me actually quite pensive about what, what is 
the, the forward trajectory. But I have to look at it as a as as a in a strategic way as a business. You know, sport is run by institutions. Institutions are inherently institutionally racist in this country. So once we exactly great log it, notice it, know it, we can start to do something about it. And I think fundamentally, what what's difficult is the action to uh, um, you know dismantle every bit of that those those processes where there is uh, an opportunity for some of those inherent biases and those systemic ways of discrimination it's how you disrupt those and it's how you dismantle those that I think are the biggest challenges for this sports administration and governance and leadership within this country. This is Medals and More. I'm Catherine Granger. In this episode of the podcast we're discussing diversity with Chris Grant and Michelle Moore and whether sport can seize this moment and make purposeful change. I would say that there are going to be organisations and people within those organisations who are like, when is this over? What, is it done yet? Is it out of the headlines? What's going on? Is she still going on about black lives? She's still talking about racism. That's what's going to be happening in some of the organisations. Um, and, you know, the likes of Lewis Hamilton, great example. You know, F1 is really not not happy about what he's doing. You know, let's be clear. But I also think that I'm having conversations with, you know, being very open with white conscious leaders who are like, you know, I haven't, I haven't been getting this right for a long time. I've been playing lip service to this. I know three years ago when you raised this to me, Michelle, I said that my, my issue is, is to do with fundraising and it's not to do with dealing with race and I'm going to put that off. You know, it's a conversation I had with somebody at UK Sport when the governance code came out. Where are the intersections within this? How can we just be saying gender is more important than everything else of race and ethnicity? How do we not recognise how these all overlap? So am I hopeful? I know that I'm having different conversations. Did I ever think that I would hear Gareth Southgate talk about white privilege? No way. No way. So, you know, there are things that are happening that make me think, okay, people are waking up. Let's be clear about how, why they're waking up. It's because of something that happened to George Floyd. You know, this is galvanizing people in a different way and organizations. And I'm, I want them to be able to move beyond the performative action that we see from the jazzy, you know, slogans and vision statements and the black tiles on social media to the action of actually examining their own inherent biases and racism. Because that's the bit that's going to make the change. We hear a lot about organisations and I, you know, I speak to leaders all the time who say it's too difficult because we have to do it. We have to create this big culture change, Michelle. It's a culture shift. Well, okay. Culture equals people. You know, this happens when people make different choices and actually choose to behave differently, choose to talk to people who are different and we normalise difference. So, this is the time and has always been the time to do the right thing when it comes to tackling anything to do with racial inequities. I'm interested when you're talking about changing culture and change, therefore changing people as well. You know, there's always a sort of, it just takes time. It takes time to change cultures. It takes time to, to change sort of people's behaviours and things. Do you feel that's something that can be done quicker or addressed sooner? Or is that just you have to accept it's, it's in the long game. One perspective on that, Catherine, is that I've, I've been a, a privileged fly on the wall for the what used to be called the world-class performance system 
and, and still is pretty much the best performance system in the world in terms of those deliverables of getting medals, uh, which are, you know, which the nation can can draw energy and inspiration from. So the Olympic and Paralympic bit. And so I've been in rooms uh, fairly regularly since about 2006 or seven. So pre Beijing, full of people who work within that system. And I've always loved being in those rooms because I love being around people who are really good at what they do. And I saw when I was first in those rooms, and I'm 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 generalizing, but but you know I think this would be borne out um, by by the numbers. They you know they I would say that they were 80 to 90 percent male, and they were certainly 97 or above percent white. And the shift that happened, I started to see a shift around 2012, so four or five years into my involvement. And and I there was a standout event that I went to on International Women's Day in 2012 not long before the London Games, where there were kind of there were 200 women and about four slightly nervous blokes in a room near the Olympic Park celebrating International Women's Day, but talking about the challenge of challenges of leadership in sport um, or from a point of view of, of, of gender. And what struck me then, and this is I am answering your question, I'll get to the answer, is that the people in that room, and I, I would say that the average age of that of, 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 of the women in that room was probably, you know, it was, it was 30s or early 40s rather than late 40s into 50s, which is my age now and, and the age of most of the blokes who are who are senior in, in sport. And, and to answer your question about, you know, whether it's a quick or a slow win and also whether it's a sustained win or a moment is it's all about the extent to which you not only get diversity, but you also get inclusion. So inclusion is about those institutions which Michelle was talking about, which have structural issues around all of these equalities areas historically, adjusting themselves not only to welcome, but to, 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 to make themselves fit for those people to stay. And I looked around that room in 2012 and I thought, wow, if this, if this lot are running the show in 10 years time, we'll probably be doing all right. And I should say, because we're talking about race, that most of those women, it was a more diverse uh, group from an ethnicity point of view than most groups that I've been with. It's still, you know, disproportionately white relative to the country. But I, but, but, but what I also knew or, or sensed at that stage was that a lot of those people, younger and, and, and women, if they were leading sport, then sport would get better quicker and, and, and that the change would last for longer. So, so when, when Michelle talks about intersectionalities, there, you know, there are very positive intersectionalities for me around allowing slightly younger and more gender diverse leadership can then lead to unlocking ethnicity and disability and, and other inequalities in sport. And so, but all of that depends on the senior leadership being prepared to let go of stuff genuinely being prepared to allow people in, in ways which are meaningful and not just for show. And I think the jury's out for sport right now. So, so to go back to your original question, I see some leaders in sport who genuinely seem to be thinking about their personal leadership style, their personal role, and how by shifting how they lead. Some of them have been helped, I think, by the lockdown because they've been forced uh, to, to disrupt their own patterns. Um, but I, you know, if I'm honest, I don't think that's yet the majority of, 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 of white male leaders in sport. 
And I think, you know, I, I don't want to offend anyone, but I think the majority of white male leaders in sport of an age are in the category that Michelle referred to, are kind of on some level hoping that this will go away and things will get back to them not, you know, being able to put this in a box over there somewhere. And, but I think there are enough of us who are determined not to let that happen. And, and also genuinely, sports and leaders in sport, when they really get their teeth into some of the actions which change stuff, they will benefit from it and they'll start, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be difficult bits for them, but they'll start seeing how, how their whole sport can be refreshed. A lot of sports are under massive pressure right now from top to bottom, you know, with, with, with all of the restrictions of COVID and so on. So it's not about building back what was there, even building that back a bit better. It's about taking this opportunity and say, how can we reinvent what we do so that so that people uh, with all of the awareness that's grown around the, the benefits, physical and in terms of mental health and others are being active. How can we make sure that 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 the whole nation is is able to enjoy what we offer? It's an amazing sweet shop of sports and activities that everyone maybe sweet shops not a good metaphor because they're not very good for you. But but it's like if sweets were good for you, then they'd be sport. <laughs> Sugar free sweet shop was good for us. Yeah, yeah, but they still give you a buzz. <laughs> if um if you're right in that there's still a lot of people not convinced that 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 changes for the better um and sort of hoping some of these things pass how how do you convince those people considering we do seem to be in a it's a big social conversation happening across every sector and across the world right now and if some people still are not convinced now what will it take if anything to convince them to, that this is the good direction to move in it's always going to be a challenge when you do work around anti-racism that there are going to be those individuals that that don't want to get on board and the reality is is you have to work with those that are prepared to get on board and you create a culture that is a culture that i think is all about kind of conscious leadership that is it that is based on authenticity and integrity and when you're a conscious leader you kind of step into those shoes and you have enough about you to acknowledge those vulnerabilities and in 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 the power in that is that you're enabled to then step into somebody else's shoes. I'm stepping now because I'm so practically minded. You then step into the shoes of somebody that's different to you and you're able to empathise with their truths in a different way. That then actually some people decide that they can't be a part of that culture, that their shared identity is no longer representative. And as somebody that's, you know, worked in schools, worked in premiership football, worked in local government, you know, the teams that I've managed, I've had people leave because they haven't been on board with the um, the way of lead, the way that I chose to lead, which was about equity and inclusion. It wasn't the Michelle Moore way. That Michelle Moore, she's so difficult. No, that these are based on on principles of inclusivity, of of understanding that we want to create leaders that are leaderful. African American activist, scholar, role model of mine, Angela Davis, who I'm wearing today, says it all of the time. How do we create a workforce where where people are leaderful? that actually this isn't just, and it is very important that the leaders of the organisation show the way, but this is about everybody taking responsibility for this. And when you create cultures like that, you do have people that move on. And actually it's like, tell us, see you later. It's all good because as a leader, you want to create a space where everybody, there is there is justice for everybody. And as you were talking about that, you know, how long it takes. I remembered the Martin Luther King quote that says that 
you know, justice delayed is actually justice denied. Let's be clear. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to keep saying it's going to take years and years, that tells that you're not interested in creating a fairer and just system. So you have no place within our sport. That's what I would be saying, because I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I see myself as a young woman, but I am in my late 40s, right? So why, and I've been talking about this for, for the whole of my career, and as have many activists and campaigners before me. And so, you know, when is it that we're going to do this? If, you know, at what time will this be relevant and important enough for you? Where will this fit into your strategic plan? So I, I, I have to kind of share this what, with you, my, my real passion for having conscious leaders who, un, who are prepared to give up some of their power and acknowledge the vulnerability that goes with that. And then they're, then they're enabled to create the real change which we're looking for. Can I, can I just add to that? Because I think that's so powerful what you've said, Michelle. And it, and it just for me reinforces this idea that you know, an important part of leadership in the 21st century is, is the capacity to, to be self-aware and reflect on your impact and to, to understand that your impact may be different from your intention. But I think in sport, we have another really important area, which is as important as leadership, which is representation and who we see and how long, Catherine? You know, one of the things which UK sport and the Home Nation Sports Councils are doing now, following that conversation, which, which was, was given uh, energy in, the, in, in May, is, is a proper audit of everything it knows about race and sport. And people say, well, why another review? There are loads of view, reviews. We already know what's going on. But, but actually, I think we haven't fully known. And I, I can say certainly in a Sport England context that really breaking down some of the numbers around who's doing which sports at which, which age, it reveals all sorts of things, not all of it negative. Some of it is positive surprises in terms of communities who are, who are quietly enjoying certain sports, even though they're not visible at, at the higher levels. But I think so. So one of the things which is close to your world is, is you know, I've been quoting broad numbers around uh, around representation. I think it's safe to say, although I don't know for sure, I think there's probably one third of our Olympic and Paralympic sports, at least one third, which have never had an athlete representing us who wasn't white ever on the Olympic and Paralympic stage. Now, I, I may be wrong, it may only be a quarter, but, but either way, given the fact that the population of the UK at the age where you'd see people competing now is somewhere around 13 to 15% of what we call black, Asian and minority ethnic, BAME. You know, that's, that's a, a, a problem. But here's the big one. That, that, I wasn't surprised at all at that. The thing that depresses me, and, and, it, and, and Michelle, you talked earlier on about the, the impact, for example, having images of, of someone having, you know, being killed, brought into your living room. I, I get almost a similarly visceral impact when I see some of the statistics around some of our talent pathways, which tell me that those talent pathways are no more diverse than the podium programs, uh, or at least that was the case until recently. And so once again, you know, and I, I we're, we're, we're deep into this conversation and, and I, you know, I just, we're talking about a lot of the solutions, which is good, I think. But, you know, we have to acknowledge that, that that's just not good enough and not acceptable. And, and so 
I would be much more optimistic, and it's one of the areas that I've been focusing on, and Michelle's been part of it with the talent inclusion advisory kind of push within Sport England to say, look, why don't we diversify our talent our, our talent pathways to make sure that by the time we get to Paris or LA or, or wherever, you know, the 2032, 2036 games are going to be that that young people get what I got when I was you know I I had to wait till I was 13 to see my first non-white player play for my favorite football team Vince Hilaire at Crystal Palace you know I saw Viv Anderson step onto the field wearing an England shirt the first black man to do so um, you know and and there have been a series of firsts since then which have massively been they've been you Michelle you mentioned Cyril Regis I mean Cyril Regis made a huge difference to my life and my development. And I would, frankly, I wouldn't be here talking to you if it wasn't for the impact of some of those people. I could see people succeeding who look like me. Imagine how powerful it will be when our teams and the people supporting them behind the scenes look like and sound like the whole of our population. Imagine how powerful that will be. But, but we, you know, we have the opportunity to change some of that relatively quickly over the course of maybe two or three cycles. And I think one of the advantages that we have in sport is that we think in terms of cycles. You know, we think, and, and four years isn't very long, but relative to how a lot of sectors function, the fact that we can think, you know, about who's, who is going to be representing us in 2028, 2032, 20, you know, and we were already thinking about, that creates a massive opportunity for us in sport to take a leadership role for the nation in showing how you can become reflective and representative. I know you both work in other worlds beyond sport as well. Is there anything you're seeing in other sectors that you think, you know, sport could really learn from that? Because I think the one thing that's always impressed me with anyone in sport is, is that kind of constant need to, uh, you know, find who's doing things well and how to sort of take that on or improve yourself. Where, where could sport learn from and be better in? in where, where's, who's doing this brilliantly? Who's doing this well? if anywhere? For me, I think it's always about those organisations who um, are led with uh, a real conviction around these issues. And so the work that I've been doing has been fundamentally with schools. And so I've been supporting the education system to think about how that they can decolonise their curriculums, how there's much more clear pathways to leadership for black and Asian and minority ethnic minority members of their staff. And the ways in which they've been doing that um, and some of the organisations, the corporates that I've been working with has been, to be very frank, has been off of the back of kind of workforce um, coalitions. So organisations have set up their, it's like an employee engagement network or a, a, some kind of network group that becomes a task force for that organisation. So it's almost like saying, right, we've been doing our cosy diversity inclusion initiatives over here and ticking our compliance boxes, but we haven't really created any equity. We don't have any diverse role models. We don't have we can just see from the outcomes that these aren't anti-racism outcomes. And so it has taken the concerted effort of those that are often the victims of that particular oppression to come together to create these spaces, which are, I would call um, Chris's words, truth and reconciliation spaces. And that has been something that 
Um, I know is something that we're developing now in, in sport, which is, you know, a really promising and positive development. But that's what I'm seeing in different organisations, kind of in within their own different structures. But there's a new energy to listen and there's a strategic buy-in in, in a way that there wasn't beforehand. And so organisations that are doing well are, are the ones that are really listening. So one corporate I was working with, they... Um, they uh, recorded or auditory the 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 um, experiences of women within their organization and then they um you know everybody was anonymized and then they played it back to the board the board could not relate to any of those experiences at all they were like we cannot believe the racialized way that they experience sexism and the different kinds of very minor, small abuses. I don't call them um, like the microaggressions necessarily because they are are discrimination in, in all kinds of ways. And so it's it's listening to the, the, the voices of their employees, um, but that there's that it can be problematic because that's you know the reality is is not everybody feels safe enough to to voice their their um, experiences because of career retribution because in in any which way that that is a real uh, a real factor so i'm seeing more spaces for those kind of um coalitions and people coming together to articulate their truths and i've had you know a number of different of my people in my network emailing me letters they feel as if they can now articulate their feelings and some of the solutions to their management in a different way and they're like michelle is this okay and i'm like wow and it's lots of it is really radical and I'm like go for it if you're not going to do it now when are you going to do it so go for it use that voice right now be be clear that I always do these are the risks of doing that right if you're clear about that but this is this is a good time to do it so go for it so I think people are finding their voices and organizations are listening in a different way. Yeah, I would support that. And I, one of the reasons I, once again, I genuinely really welcome the approach being adopted by the Home Nation Sports Councils and UK Sport is as well as the quantitative stuff around representation and participation, this attempt to open up a safe space to hear people's lived experiences. Because like Michelle, you know, more so in the last few months but but always over these I've, I've always had people come and talk to me about what was going on and sport needs to hear and I think connected with that and, and going back to your question about other sectors I think that one of the things that I see in some other sectors or places is, is that networks aren't only tolerated they're encouraged so so people who who have shared experiences or potentially shared experiences to have the space created for them or, or to allow them to create their own spaces to talk to each other and compare notes. So in, you know, the older ones like the Society of Black Lawyers, but in a lot of professional services companies and financial services companies, spaces being given now, as, as it has been for a while around other um, protected characteristics and around gender, you know, to, and, and people aren't seeing, you know, the leadership are checking themselves and not seeing it as threatening that their black and brown employees want to have to a space. And I think one of the important things, you know, one of the triumphs of the last year, Michelle, you mentioned that the governance code last time around didn't include ethnicity. It included, of course, the, the requirement around, around gender diversity on boards. Well, 
you know, we'll see what the result is of the of the current review. But you know, a few people, it, it, you know, decided to get on and do something about that anyway. And at the time of the last governance, uh, the introduction of the governance code, there were, I think, out of about 600 roles in funded organisations, there were about 19 or 20 people of colour. In the last 12 months, 29 have been appointed. Now, these, a lot of these people are, you know, they're massive. You could almost call them overqualified to be sitting on sports boards. You know, they're running global brands and you know, partners in 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 large law companies and all sorts of people. But you know, we 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 need to be able to get people in. But then we need to allow them the space to talk to each other. Another thing which I would say that I see is happening in some sectors, and I've heard of at least one example very successful in sport is broadening our our recruitment approach in sport it's really interesting i saw a i saw the listing of of, of higher education in, in the uk the other day that the, all the courses ranked and there are about 70 to 80 higher education institutions that are doing sports science sports leadership sports related programs i suspect within a lot of our system you know a lot of the people come from maybe three or four universities and there's nothing wrong with those universities but I did hear one example and I, I wouldn't want to embarrass her, but the chief, the relatively newly chief, uh, a newly appointed chief exec of one of our biggest sporting occasions, who also sits on the board of UK Sport, um, runs a big tournament every summer, which couldn't happen this year. And they made a very conscious decision for, the, for some of the roles that they have leading up to the, to the championships and, and through it that they weren't just going to go to the same old universities. And I think they went to 30 or 40 different universities to, to open up these opportunities. And guess what? <laughs> They've got a much more diverse pool of people. So I think, you know, but I see that in other sectors that people are simply, go, you know, they're, they're simply encouraging people to, because I think one of the assumptions that people make, and I feel it and I see it a lot, is that the talent isn't out there. There is massive talent who could enrich our sporting system. And all we have to do is genuinely show that we want them and that we will welcome them when they come in. And, and when we're willing to do that, um, what we'll discover once again is that, that we all stand to win through this. So I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I do think there are sectors which are doing better than us at the moment. I think the stats show that, but I'm uh, optimistic that we can catch up, not only catch up, but overtake them in the next three or four years. I'm Catherine Granger and this is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. It's Black History Month and I'm interested in what my guests, Chris Grant and Michelle Moore, think about this initiative. The reason why Black History Month exists is because black history has been denied for so many years and has been written out of British history. So it is British history, but it has been written out of the history books so therefore we need to address it and that kind of meritocracy argument just doesn't work because we don't live in a meritocracy and so therefore it's vitally important that we recognize and celebrate and acknowledge the, the contribution of black people to um, British society and British history so I think it's incredibly important but yes it needs to be that it is every month and I'd love to see this podcast happening every month talking about issues to do with race and ethnicity and the intersectionalities all, all of those from sexuality to religion to access to sport to low socioeconomic background all of those intersections so therefore black history is really important and especially at this time some of the trauma of reliving racism 
through what they're seeing on their screens, through the Black Lives Matter movement, it's critically significant that we acknowledge how difficult that space is, but we also celebrate in their talent and recognise and celebrate who they are. You know, some of our athletes have been through some real ordeals. Bianca Williams having been making the headlines, you know, stopped in her car with her, her baby son, with her partner. And so therefore, our black athletes do need to be celebrated and acknowledged because they experience, you know, what William Dubois talks about, you know, the double consciousness of being a black person within the world, of having to be uh, an athlete, of having this identity, the two social identities, of being an athlete, being the, you know, being the... Uh, the nations uh, in in the bosom of the nation, you know, like they're amazing. And then the next minute they could be a pariah just for one step, uh, one misstep. Jeanette actually talked about it powerfully in a, an article that she did um, in The Telegraph earlier this year. And actually um, Katrina, Katrina Johnson-Thompson talked about it as well in her article in Vogue. You know, the fact that Marcus Rashford made global headlines but the politicians got his name wrong, you know. So I think there is something about this time in particular as to why Black History Month is so significant. And I would also say that we need to continue these conversations and it needs to be a part of our narrative within the, the infrastructure of sport, yes. Some of the gaps that have been left out of our teaching of, of history and, and culture impoverish us all and limit our capacity as a nation, I'm talking about the United Kingdom now, to, to fulfil our potential moving forward. And I think you can take that on all sorts of levels. So in, in sport, I do think that, you know, there are serious issues affecting athletes today uh, in different sports um, when they're competing abroad in certain places. So Michelle mentioned earlier Gareth Southgate's kind of exemplary uh, in, in that situation. Uh, kind of protection or, and support for his athletes in, in, in certain extreme situations last year. But, but other athletes have raised, I think, I think simply for a performance system, for example, to be aware that when they're traveling, without necessarily putting stereotypes onto different countries you're going to, because a lot of this stuff could happen here in the UK, but to say actually there may be certain issues that affect certain of our athletes that we need to be mindful of. And these things haven't just appeared overnight. They're things that, that if we have a background of thinking about these things, not one month a year, but, but all the time as part of what's going on in the world, it will serve them and us. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer in, so we talked earlier on about moments versus movements. And, and moments are good where they're actually keeping the movement going. And I think for us this year, Black History Month has arrived at, at a particularly important and helpful moment where there was a danger that, that some of the attention that came about in May and June, while we weren't able to go anywhere because of, of, of COVID, that that was beginning to dissipate and we can refocus now. Um, so, so I think it's a, really, it's a really important thing. I think some of the specific stories, you know, I, I, I watched... I, I've watched certain athletes, and I'll, some of the less sung, you know, Verona Elder was an amazing runner when I was a kid. And it's only now in my 50s that I realised that, you know, she, she looked a bit like me. <laughs> and, uh, and she was so important to me. And there are so many athletes who deserve to be celebrated for all sorts of reasons. 
And I think one of the opportunities, once again, that sport has over other sectors is it has all these characters from different backgrounds who can be celebrated uh, and remembered and, and the stories around them can be used to educate all of us about what got us here and more importantly about how to move forward. So I'm a, I'm a great supporter of Black History Month and I'm a great supporter, I think as a nation, we have the opportunity when you talk about intersectionalities, Michelle, to, to be able to have, you know, difficult conversations about things which are quite complex, but actually the more we talk about them, the more they will make sense and the more we'll own them all. If and when we meet in person in, say, 10 years time, let's be safe, we'll be able to meet in at least 10 years, hopefully, and we're catching up over a drink and you're reflecting back and you're going, gosh, things really changed and it is better because i never got to see hamilton this musical that everyone was talking about but apparently there's a song in it or something a rap called about something about being in the room it is tiring i i you know i've been to strategy consultations and all sorts of events and from a personal point of view it's kind of exhausting walking into rooms and just clocking who's in there and just thinking oh this just doesn't feel like the, the UK or the England or the wherever I am that I know and love. So for me, when, when, we, when we have that chance encounter in 10 years time, Catherine, it'll be a really natural thing that we'll just glimpse around the room and we'll see, we'll see that diversity in the room and it will be and it won't just be the glamorous things and the prominent things. It will be, you know, if it's a performance conference, it will be some of the nutritionists some of the physios, some of the strength and conditioning folks, some, as well as some of the performance directors, you know, just some of, but as we look around, it will just feel completely natural. And then we'll carry on our chat face to face, which will be lovely. I think for me, it's always going to be about, you know, seeing, you know, ethnic diversity, sexuality, seeing disability, seeing the broad spectrum of diversity, represented in our national teams at mega events, represented in our coaching structures, represented in the leadership and the government governance and administration of sport. I want to see just greater diversity. Uh, you know, being often at kind of strategic meetings as, as, as Chris was talking about, or at that round table or this round table, you'll see the same black and brown faces and Asian faces. So you'll see the same diversity faces right there because you know the organisers are right, we, we need to invite Chris Grant, we need to invite this person. And you're like, it's nice to see you again, but I know there are other diverse faces out there. Let's be clear. Um, and we really need to do better at opening up our networks and creating a space where it's okay for us to disagree I, you know, I know that I'm excluded from some events and some networks because I know that they're like, she's a bit troublesome, Michelle Moore. You know, she's she's not going to play the game. And even if we've employed her to come and work for us and moderate, she's going to have a real conversation. And that's because I've recognised my own way of being and being self-aware because this is what this work is about. I, I cannot viscerally not say something if I'm in a space where I think some unfairness is happening. It's 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 one of my triggers. It's something that as a black woman of mixed heritage has been a part of me since 
since I experienced racism in, in the pram when I was very, very young. For, you know, my mum was abused in the street for having brown babies. I'm a twin. And so that experience, that sense of social injustice has been with me for a very, very long time. So if I'm in a place where I know I get asked to speak on panels about some of this, it is my I can see it as my role to call some of these things out. And so I think if I want to see something different, if we're kicking back in a really nice place, drinking champagne, having a cup of tea afterwards as well, at some point, I like tea. We are going to be looking at a system where sport is so much more reflective of the country in which we're, we're living. And we're also in a space where people are OK with disagreeing and having a different perspective around it, that 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 new sense of disruption comes with this change. You know, one of the biggest issues is that people think diversity is difficult because they don't know how to manage it. When we bring in people that are different, it's it, it there's a, a more inherent um, expectation that there will be some conflict because there's difference, but we'll get to our solutions easier. We know that, it's well rehearsed. And so I think we need to create the environment where it's, it's where we normalise difference and we accept all of the the facts that go with the power and the privilege of our individual identities within that and, and the responsibility that we have to create a fairer and juster system. And I, you know, I'm taking Angela Davis and her words as a part of what I do in my work. I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things that I cannot accept. And that's what I've got on my T-shirt. And that's the kind of mantra in which I, I do the work that I do. And I want to share that with people to ask them to be more self-reflective and self-aware of these issues that we're talking about and challenge themselves to do something to create a, a, a better and a fairer sport that we can all enjoy. Thanks, Michelle. Great words from Angela Davis as well. We should change the things we cannot accept. So I think we, it's a challenge to us all. When we all sit together in 10 years time, having plenty of champagne, Michelle will have it overflowing for you. But, you know, it's, it's that case that we can't just sit back and hope and the best and be optimistic. It's a lot about action and, and people sort of taking on the challenges that we've got and I think as we've said today everyone has a role that they can play and whatever they're comfortable with but it's about speaking out and acting out so I just want to say a massive thank you not just for your time today but the all the work you do between you we've got two amazing people here who are making huge changes for the better in our wonderful sporting world so thank you for all the work that you do and will continue to do and I hope everyone listening you're not alone in that we've all like we said we've all got a role to play and we all will play that role and it will be better for it so thank you very much Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More. Download and subscribe. You won't miss a moment.